Hello and welcome to Matt D'Elia is Confused. This is Matt D'Elia and this week's episode is about aliens. Everybody uh, wants to know about aliens, but we don't know if they're out there. Uh, and I wanted to have someone come on the show who is an, uh, uh, an expert in looking for them. Um, and a few weeks ago, I saw a, um, a talk at the Royal Institute about SETI, which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And the man giving the, uh, the talk was named Keith Cooper. And Keith recently wrote a book called The Contact Paradox, challenging our assumptions in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And the talk is is super interesting. Um, it's sort of, I think the title of it is The Fermi Paradox, which is a very interesting thing that uh, Keith and I get into, among many other things, uh, including just what I find most fascinating about this, beyond just even just are there aliens out there, what's out there uh, in the vastness of space, but how does one look for a thing when you have no idea how to look for it and the space in which it could be is endless. Um, and it, it, so it, it's, it's a, it's a very wide ranging conversation that Keith and I had. Uh, thank you, Keith, for coming on the show, uh, by his book. It's extremely interesting and has a lot of the things it expands on a lot of the things we, we do get to talk about. Uh, in the episode, uh, much of which I was and still am deeply confused about, but it's sort of a, a, a confusion filled with wonder, uh, less anxiety than wonder, really. Um, and I think it's something we can all relate to. Um, I hope you guys like this conversation as much as I liked having it. Here is my conversation with Keith Cooper. Okay. My name's Keith Cooper. I'm a, a science journalist uh, based in the UK, and I've, I've been doing this for about 15 years. I edit a magazine called Astronomy Now, which is kind of like a newsstand equivalent of Sky and Telescope that you have over there in the States. Um, and, you know, I've always been interested in, in, in space and space exploration and astronomy since I was a, you know, small child. Uh, and I've always loved science fiction as well. So, it, it seems kind of natural that, you know, somebody who loves space and science fiction is going to be interested in, you know, whether there's life out there and SETI. So that's kind of where the interest has come from, um, driven by those things. And as, as I went into researching the book, um, you know, it, it, yeah, it's a book about SETI. Yeah. But at its heart, I, I think it's more of a book about ourselves. It's about where we come from, where we're going, our, our nature, um, our you know place in the universe, um, our hopes and our dreams. Um, so, you know, even if you're skeptical about the existence of, of other life out there, I, I think by doing SETI, um, by you know, there's a phrase I use in the book: "The stars are like a mirror." 
we right. look to the stars and we see ourselves reflected back. And I think there's a lot we can learn about ourselves from from doing SETI. So, you know, those were the that was the real driving force about um, doing this book. And uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, my introduction to you was was your um, your speech um, uh, or presentation at the Royal Institute on the Fermi paradox. Uh, that was uh-huh. the first time I saw you and and. and 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 heard you speak about it and i and that was something that you that's something that you say that rings very true uh this this idea that the stars are sort of a mirror uh mm-hmm. and and i think that's it's a really 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 eloquent way of putting it um can you expand just like a bit on that about what what you mean sort of uh a bit uh in terms of not necessarily if, i mean maybe if it is your experience but also just like the broader idea of when we are looking out there how that really is such a deep reflection of of us and what we are and who we are sure um i think you can approach that from a couple of angles there's you know the old carl sagan quote that we're all star stuff we're all made of the same things also when we look into space you know we're kind of looking at our origins anyway but you know nobody knows anything about aliens you know we've never met any the ufo people might say otherwise but (laughs) you know know, we 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 haven't we have no idea if there's anything out there or what it's like so all we have to base that on is you know life here on earth so you know when we imagine what extraterrestrial life might be like really we're extrapolating from the life that we know on earth mm-hmm. uh, so you know we can we kind of discover all kinds of amazing things about ourselves by just you know extrapolating as i say and and imagining you know various ways that life could have gone here on earth and and about our future as well you know we expect that if there is a uh, intelligent species out there that they will be um, much older than we are because the universe is about 13.8 billion years old and mm. for most of that history it's been able to form planets and stars and the likelihood is that if intelligent life developed somewhere else it would have done so a long time ago and be much older than us mm. and you know if, if it is technological it would be far in advance of our own technology um, so when we try and imagine you know this kind of futuristic alien society we're really imagining what human society could do in the future yeah um, so again that's all we have to go on right. um, so it's kind of parochial in, in, in that sense we're kind of picturing ourselves what we might do in a million years time or, or, or whatever yeah. um yeah so that's yeah. really that's really interesting i mean i i think when i think of this and i and you know i coming from the where i'm coming from which is from sort of the the film and television industry i think of the classic idea of the little green men you know mm. and like where that might have come from and and and, and what it's it's it, the idea of what's out there being uh humanoid has always struck me as sort of very telling you know because uh there's nothing uh tell me if i'm wrong but my my presumption is that we really life could really mean anything it could come in at all different kinds of forms and there's no there's actually not any real reason to think it would be or look or sound or feel or or anything like us at all is that right i think that would depend on who you spoke to actually mm. um i mean i mean you're right in, in science fiction on, on on television in the movies the aliens 
tend to look like people. Not so much anymore because of the advent of CGI, but certainly yeah. in Star Trek, was, you know, the budget meant stick a rubber yeah. forehead on a, yeah. an actor and, and they had an alien. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, there's some debate about how evolution takes place. Mm. Uh, and there's two schools of thought. One school of thought is is convergent evolution. The evolution will converge on the same solutions time and time again. Mm. Look at how many times wings have evolved on Earth, or eyes, or ears, or, or, or whatever. You know, evolution has found this solution over and over again. Yeah. Uh, the the other um, idea, which uh, Stephen Jay Gould um, promoted, is is contingent evolution. That evolution will develop a solution for a certain set of circumstances, but that solution will be unique mm. and chances that evolution will land on that solution again is, is remote um if we go by that idea then intelligent life or life that looks like us or behaves like us may be unique to earth but if we think that evolution can you know land on these same solutions time and time again then quite possibly that you know life elsewhere would resemble us in in, in some way maybe not physically but right you know, there might be things that we can recognize. But you know, this is the thing, you know, <laughs> this is why I don't believe in UFO reports, because to me, they're not imaginative enough at mm. all. You know, it, it's, it's, you know, it's come, you know, here UFO reports and, and it's, you know, vehicles that, you know, just a little bit more advanced than our own aircraft and right. kind of annoyed and things. If you look at science fiction, some of the best science fiction has some aliens that are just bizarre. You know, take, for example... Um, Solaris, the novel by Stanislav Lem. Uh, Amazing, made yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, there the, the intelligent alien was an ocean. Right. Um, you know, so we may not recognize life or intelligence when, when we see it because we're, we're kind of tuned into thinking of what life is like on Earth and we may not recognize it when we get out there. And, and as far as recognizing it goes... Um, oh, our attempts to do so thus far. Can we talk about that a, a, a little bit and, and sort of like the, the, the ways in which we are sort of trying to spread our reach or, or see or, or, or listen or contact, I suppose, what is mm -hmm. or might be out there? Okay. Well, again, there's two forms to this. There's the, um, you know, astrobiologists looking for microbes on Mars or Jupiter's moon Europa or somewhere like that. Uh, and then there's SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, that is looking for, you know, as the name suggests, intelligent life. Mm. Um, so my book's mostly about SETI, so let's focus on that. Sure. Um, so modern SETI began in 1960 with the astronomer Frank Drake, uh, who performed the first sort of radio SETI search uh, a year before. Um, two astronomers, Giuseppe Cacconi and Philip Morrison, had, had written a paper in the science journal Nature where they'd kind of pondered what the best way to communicate across interstellar distances was, and they kind of decided that radio would be the best way. You've got to remember that in 1959, 1960, radio was starting to really mature as a technology. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in some ways, it's not surprising that they came to that solution. But, you know, for the, the, the 60 years since then, SETI has been dominated by radio telescopes listening to the stars. You've seen the film Contact with Jodie Foster based mm -hmm. on the Carl Sagan novel. Then, you know, there's the iconic image of Jodie Foster sat out in the desert with the headphones on listening to the radio signals that the 
giant radio telescope behind her is, is detecting. Um, but we're also looking for, you know, optical signals, powerful lasers. We have lasers here on Earth that are used in things like nuclear fusion experiments that are powerful enough that, you know, they would outshine our sun if we shone them into space. Um, you know, only in bursts of nanoseconds, but... So they're the kind of laser signals that we might, you know, an alien might be pointing towards us as an alternative to radio. Mm-hmm. I'm also looking for things called technosignatures, which are, I don't know, you may have heard of things like Dyson spheres, which are, you know, these um, hypothetical constructs, megastructures that a civilization might build around its star to collect all the star's energy. Um, and, you know, maybe other technosignatures of, of technology we can't even dream of. We can see its effects. We know mm. it's artificial, but we don't know really what it is. Um, so those are the sort of the main areas that we're, we're searching. Um, it is very much dependent on uh, on aliens making it easy for us. Um, right, yeah. Uh, what, what, what do you... I mean, just to, to, in the broadest possible sense, what... what what do you do you have because uh, it's so vast and it's so possible you know and 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 oh. it, it, the, w- something that fascinates me even beyond the the, the science uh and the, and the science fiction elements the excitement of it is this is this is this idea of opening your or your mind as much as possible to what could be out there what you might want to be listening to what you might want to be sort of sending out there do you sort of intuit of a, a way in which that if there is life out there, what would be sort of like the the the, the mode in which to to reach as far out as possible uh, in one way or another? Um, it's, it's it's difficult. I think we need to look in as many ways as possible because we mm-hmm. don't know how extraterrestrial intelligence, if it is out there, we don't know how it would make itself seen. We don't even know whether they're interested in sending us radio signals, this is whole assumption that they're right. going to do that, that they're going to try and communicate with us. And, and maybe they're not, maybe that's why we haven't detected anything just yet. Um, I think, yeah, I, I think just keep doing what we're doing, just do more of it. Um, SETI has been really underfunded yeah. throughout its history. You know, there's, there's no... No money for it until recently. Um, you may listeners may be familiar with uh, something called the Breakthrough Foundation. It's uh, run by a philanthropist called Yuri Milner, and uh, a couple of years ago he started uh, a SETI project. Uh, I think he's spending about ten million dollars uh, a year um, putting that in, into SETI, and they've just released uh, their second batch of data. Um, it, something like two petabytes, I think it was, of data of, of detected by radio telescopes and optical telescopes that, and you know, the public are able to search through, and mm. you know that that that's more data collected in just a few years than the entirety of SETI's history before that. That's so it's a gigantic leap. And right. Breakthrough Listen is going to be looking at about a million stars in our galaxy over the next ten years. Which sounds like a lot of stars, but <laughs> sure. then, then consider that our galaxy has, I don't know, 100 million, 200, mil, 200 billion stars, sorry. And one million stars is, is not very much. Um, so it's going to, you know, the chances of success even then are, are, are kind of against us. This could be a very long-term project. Right. It's not, 
it, it's not as easy as I think when, when they first started doing SETI and people like Frank Drake and, and Carl Sagan thought that there would be, you know, really powerful radio beacons everywhere you looked. And that's just not the case. So either the aliens uh, are, are not interested in communicating with us or, or perhaps there are other things going on that our assumptions are wrong in some kind of way. Yeah, I, I think it's 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 also uh, the, the 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 fact that you kind of have to reframe the way you're looking at uh, exp- your expectations, the likelihood, or or you know the va- the ultra vastness of space is sort of so deeply humbling that the you know if you were to look if one is to look at this from not within the field as you are but from without the field uh looking in you it's it's sort of i think it's so it's almost uh it's unfathomable to the to, to the bystander the 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 actual what what you what one looking uh when embarking on SETI is is sort of really up against. I mean, it's just it, there's a there's an image that you have in in your uh, presentation of of <coughs> the the space that we've covered in terms of trying to reach out and and listen. And it's this this tiny little speck in this tiny in this massive image of swirling specks, you know. And uh, it's just it's I find it deeply humbling. Is there is there is there is there an effect? Uh, that you are you do you still feel that even though for you it's literally a day to day this is your job this is your livelihood this is what you think about but does that sense of endlessness vastness that we all felt looking up at this guy when we're 12 11 10 years old does that still sort of have it have a hold on you and then in that sort of same way it might to someone who who isn't so familiar yeah definitely um you know, I, I mean, it's that sense of wonder that attracts people, and and, and to me, it's you know, it's an inescapable sense of wonder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially you know, you, you study the evolution of the universe and how it's developed and how life has, has formed. Um, but I, I think, I think it's difficult for a lot of people who who aren't astronomers to really comprehend how how vast the universe is. And yeah. Uh, you know, there was—I think there was a line in, in Game of Thrones um, where Tyrion says to Jon Snow when they're talking about the army of the dead or whatever, and he's saying people's minds aren't, aren't made to to cope with things that are so so big. They like to focus on you know the smaller everyday problems. They can't grasp the bigger the yeah. bigger problems. And I think we certainly see that in the world in the world today. Um, and I think when it comes to to SETI or just studying you know space exploration in general, it's I don't think people do realize how how vast the universe is. And I think in SETI, this, I think this causes a little bit of problem in terms of public perception because yeah. y- you have to look at, you know, what's the expectations of, of, of SETI finding success and detecting alien life out there. And I think people expect it to happen, you know, tomorrow. Right. I mean, it's been, the modern SETI has been going for 60 years and people are like, well, we've been looking for 60 years. There's nobody out there. We haven't <laughs> found anybody. And, I, you know, I, I think SETI itself is a little bit to blame for that because, you know, SETI relies on, on donations for funding. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if, you, if you start pitching to potential donors, oh, you know, this might take 100 years or 1,000 years before we find anybody, then the, mm-hmm. the funding is going to dry up pretty quick because nobody's right. going to be interested. Waiting that long, so I think I think 
SETI, the SETI community itself maybe doesn't help itself in that regard, um, but I understand why they do it. Sure. There's um, an analogy that um, SETI scientist Jill Tarter, I think she she was the first person I had, had used this analogy, that if the galaxy was the Pacific Ocean, um, we have searched, I don't know, scooped up a bucket load of water. That's the equil- equivalent of what we've searched compared to what else is out there. So that's really an analogy, you know, of, of the scale of, of, of the galaxy, just one galaxy, you know, in a, in a universe of trillions of galaxies. Um, so we really have barely touched the surface. It's, it's a ve- set is going to be a long-term project. I, I, I think, I, I mean, I hope I'm wrong. I'm hoping right. we discover something next year, but we may be waiting a long time. And I think this kind of contradicts the assumptions that, as I was saying, people like Carl Sagan and Frank Drake made um, back at the beginning of SETI, where they thought it was going to be easy. They thought there was going to be these very powerful radio beacons that would be obvious. But in my in my book, I, I, I talk about um, altruism as a factor in, in SETI. And I think a lot of the early SETI scientists kind of thought that if there is intelligent societies out there, um, they're going to be a lot older than we are. They're going to have moved past things like war, um, mm. because if they hadn't, they would have blown themselves up by now. And they're going to be all wise and wonderful and all powerful. Um, <laughs> and that was the assumption. And, and then, you know, they'd be have all the resources to plow into, you know, powering these giant radio beacons that could be heard across the galaxy. But when you think about it, that's an extraordinarily altruistic act to do, because to keep these beacons running for not just years, but centuries or millennia or even longer mm-hmm. um, to increase our chances that somebody's going to hear it requires huge amount of power, you know, almost as much power as the, the sun gives out. Um, so, so to go to those lengths, just to send, you know, a message saying hello mm-hmm. would be quite extraordinary. Um, and, 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 you know, and some, Sometimes SETI scientists still talk about, you know, these aliens being altruistic. Well, what does altruism really mean? Um, <clears throat> and if we look at nature, certainly on, on Earth, there are, are two main forms of altruism. The, the first is kin altruism, where basically, a, a, you know, an animal or a person or whoever would, you know, look after, would protect their offspring, their nieces, their nephews, because they carry their genes forward. So it's an evolutionary strategy to help genes progress into the future lineage um but we obviously share no kin with aliens that you know the very definition of alien they're, they're <laughs> unrelated completely yeah. so you know we're not going to have that relationship with them the other common kind of altruism is reciprocal altruism quid pro quo i do something for you and you'll do something for me and and that's fine that's how the world world works on trade and things like that but you know, when when you're considering that your nearest, you know, extraterrestrial civilization might be a hundred or a thousand light years away, then that really limits the amount that you can share between each community because it'll take so long for you know signals to travel back and forth. So that doesn't work that well either. So we start to take altruism out of the equation. And then, we, you know, we start to think, well, why would they devote these resources to, to producing radio signals that we could hear or laser signals that we could could see? And, and 
you know, maybe they don't. Maybe that requires a level of altruism that they just don't have. So maybe that's one reason for, you know, this so-called great silence. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, something I find extremely cool about sort of your uh, uh, approach to these things is, is the way that you talk about the sort of assumptions that we make about things including this and and including what we we're talking about earlier about what the, the the form it might take and and again i it keeps coming back to that central sort of thing that you talk about which is the stars being a mirror there really is so much in these assumptions that we make about what is out there what might it be like and all this that that really says until we find i mean until we f- actually find something it says more about us than it could possibly about anything else and 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 it's really 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 uh just true and and i and i can't i keep sort of coming back to that and and it, it really it it putting it that way really crystallizes it and i and i think that sort of is what uh, uh, it, it really connects to that 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 wonder that that you were talking about earlier having having as a young young kid i I distinctly remember the very first time I truly deeply considered the uh, vastness of of what's out there. I, I was there was this there was this part of this like cliff where I grew up where uh, as kids we would go up there and sort of act do bad shit, you know, but but I was laying on the hood of a car and I was staring up at the sky and I distinctly remember this because it's such a it's such a strong feeling. But I was looking up and I was and, and it was just that creeping anxiety of of the vastness was just kind of it was it was impossible to grasp, you know what I mean? And 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 yeah. that is sort of uh that that is the most when I think about this stuff the 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 vastness and the impossibility of what is out there what could be out there and this overwhelming feeling of how do i even think about it you know how do i even bring my mind to the possibility and 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 that i think is something that sort of messes someone's mind up in their ability to think about it at least especially from outside your field I would say, you know, I think, I think it's impossible as, as I think you might've said earlier, it's impossible really for someone outside of, 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 of the purview of science or, or specifically this science is impossible to actually think about. And I, and I mean that in the most basic way. Mm-hmm. And I think astronomers get a little bit blase about it as well. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, universe is 13.8 billion years old you know that that's a length of of time that nobody can really truly comprehend astronomers are used to throwing that kind of number around but you know even they they know it intuitively that that's the age of the universe but they can't grasp how long that truly is you know and the same with you know the distances in space you know the the galaxy is a hundred thousand light years across you know the nearest galaxies are millions of light years away it's it's mind-bogglingly huge yeah and yeah it's just yeah yeah you have to kind of you know put yourself in kind of like a cosmic kind of mindset to even begin to 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 kind of grasp it and and it, it, it is a frontier um but it's also you know it's the unknown, and I think you know the unknown always kind of beckons us. We always we're we're a, a, a you know a, 
a species of explorers. I think that's why one of the reasons we do SETI is because, you know, we want to explore what is out there. Mm-hmm. And m- maybe when we look up at all those stars, maybe around every star there is a planet with life looking back at us. And maybe, maybe that vast universe is actually quite friendly and there's lots, lots of life out there inhabiting it. But on the other hand, maybe there's nobody out there and it's just cold, empty vastness. Um, in which case then there's an awful lot of responsibility on our shoulders because if we wipe ourselves out, then that could be it for intelligent life, conscious life in, in the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, <laughs> quite big stakes. Yeah, yeah, that leads, I think, perfectly into sort of, de- de- uh, I, I, I want to ask you to sort of define the Fermi paradox before we start getting into it uh, too deep. So so if you could just define <laughs> the Fermi paradox and then we can jump sure, into that. Sure, okay, well, well let's... let's- yeah, let, let's just do a little bit of history then um, about where the Fermi paradox came from. So you've heard of the, the Manhattan Project, which was the, the project to develop the atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. And um, the USA drew in all the best minds from Europe, all the best physicists to work on that. And then after the war, they, they stayed working um, at Los Alamos. And one of those physicists was uh, an Italian, I think it might be an Italian-American, um, Enrico Fermi. Um and one lunchtime, him and all his physicist pals were sat in the common room in 1950, and he picked up a copy of The New Yorker. And uh, there was a cartoon in, in, in the magazine uh, in New York. There had recently, recently been an odd spate of trash can thefts, uh, while at the same time there'd been um, some flying saucer sightings. So the cartoonist had put the two together, and he had drawn a little picture of a flying saucer landing with little green men coming out to abduct the trash cans uh so 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 enrico fermi saw that and i don't know whether he found the cartoon funny or not but he he kind of thought about it for a moment then asked out loud where is everybody and what he meant is that the universe is old enough that if intelligent life technological life had arisen somewhere else there'd been plenty of time for it to to reach us to come here um again he was discounting the ufo reports he, he didn't believe those mm-hmm. um so him and all his physicists pals remember these were some of the smartest people in the world at the time uh did some back of the envelope calculations and they concluded that the reason we don't see any evidence for extraterrestrial life uh is because interstellar travel is uh, impossible and they couldn't reach us um we now don't think that is the case we now think that interstellar travel certainly for robotic spacecraft is is, is, is potentially feasible Mm-hmm. Um, and over the years, sort of Fermi's question has been has twisted into the Fermi paradox and, and broadened out to encompass, you know, this great silence, the fact that we haven't detected any radio signals or any other evidence that there's a life, whether it's intelligent or otherwise, out there. Um, the thing with the Fermi paradox is, you know, the definition of a paradox is when you have two facts that are incontrovertibly true, but they contradict each other. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're mutually exclusive, yet they both exist side by side. That's a paradox. In SETI, we have very, we don't have any facts. Mm. We barely searched the, the galaxy, so you can't say that we've searched every nook and cranny to find aliens. We haven't. There's vast areas of space that we haven't looked at yet. Um, and it, the Fermi paradox to me is more a paradox of, of our assumptions, we don't know whether they're out there or not, and you know just the fact that we haven't detected them yet. I don't. I don't think we can draw too many conclusions from that. But people do 
you know, get quite obsessed with the Fermi paradox and trying to find solutions to it. Um, you know, maybe that intelligent life is rare or they've blown themselves up or we're in some kind of cosmic zoo or they're hiding in black holes or, or whatever. Um, my solution is just let's wait and see because we, we haven't looked enough to say whether there's any kind of paradox. Um, right. Right. Yeah. The, 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 uh, the one, I feel like the version of it that I hear, the, the interpretation of it <clears throat> that I'm most familiar with, just sort of mm. in the science fiction realm of uh, that side is, is, uh, you know, we, the idea that by the time we, we are able to contact is exactly the time that we have been able to destroy ourselves. And that's mm. why what we've destroyed ourselves as we come upon the moment, uh, the, the technological advanced state, technologically advanced stage to be able to contact is exactly when we do sort of self detonate almost, which, which is interesting, but that to me sounds like it, it sounds just too neat and too sort of narrative driven. You know what I mean? That sounds like, like a literally like a, like a setup for science fiction, you know, the race sure. to contact before you destroy. Yeah. It's also, it's also incredibly depressing. Um, that certainly is, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm, and I'm, I'm sure if, you know, there are lots of civilizations that develop, I'm sure that will happen to some of them. But for the Fermi paradox to work, it has to happen to every single one. Mm. Um, and surely, surely some civilization must have been able to slip through the net to make the right choices and not wipe themselves out. Uh, and it would only take one to, you know, to be able to survive past that bottleneck and expand and thrive. So I'm not sure that is um, necessarily. Again, again, I think we're putting our own fears mm -hmm. uh, on onto SETI. You know, we, we we're, we're beset by threats on all sides. You know, we have the climate emergency. We've got the threat of nuclear war. Of, you know, artificial intelligence doing crazy things. Asteroid impacts. You know probably hazards we haven't even thought of yet. Um, so we do worry you know, a lot about, about things like that. And, and we do project, I think, a little bit. Um, you know, that was another thing that, that Carl Sagan often spoke of, is, you know, if we detected uh, a signal from an advanced technological species, I say advanced in, in, in quotes because, you know, just because they're older than us and more technologically developed than us doesn't mean they're going to be culturally advanced or socially advanced we, we have no idea. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, his argument was then to be able to tell us how they survived things like climate change and, and, and what have you. And, and, and to be honest, even just their existence would would show that, you know, this bottleneck that we're, we're running up into isn't necessarily fatal, that, that you can survive and progress and develop into the long future. Um, so I think, you know, if, if we detected a signal even if we couldn't decipher it, if it was too far away for us to send a reply, whatever, just the, the existence of that signal would give us hope um, that, you know, we're not fated to, to wipe ourselves out. Right. Uh, yeah, again, so, it's, sort of, it's sort of that mirror thing. I mean, you talk about what we are afraid of. We, put, we project onto this blank canvas of outer space, which we know the, the tiniest bit about you know i keep coming back to the image that you said i forget who you accredited to but this idea of the entire pacific ocean and then what we've seen so far is one bucket full of its water i mean that is like yeah. there's an impossibility to fathoming that that is 
undeniable, you know. Um, but but uh, it's yeah, it's just it's 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 endless the the uh, the the possibility, and anyone's fears can be sort of mirrored in in a way that uh, you know you, it, because it is such a blank canvas, I suppose. Because there mm-hmm. is so much unknown, you really can project anything onto it because, you know, there's any, anything is possible in, in literal sense. I mean, when people say, you know, anything's possible, that's really not true when you're talking about things on Earth. Things on Earth are mm-hmm. bound by our laws of physics, you know. But anything is, is actually possible out there, and therefore any sort of fear or worry can be really sort of imagined uh, uh, with the aid of that mirror out in the stars, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I mean, ahead, just, you know, looking at, at science fiction, because science fiction, you know, has, has, has considered the other, the alien, you know, just as much as, as science has. And, and science fiction has also, you know, reflected the current mood and, and we project ourselves into the themes of science fiction i mean just look just look at the you know the science fiction b movies of the 1950s you know they were thinly veiled sort of allegories to the you know the red menace and things like that and the um, bomb yeah totally yeah 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 and look at a lot of the dystopian science fiction of today which again is you know our, our fears about the future um so it's the same kind of thing mm-hmm. um and yeah, you know, again, you know, we're talking about you know maybe an extraterrestrial society that's a million years older than us. In in a million years' time, what will humanity be doing? I mean, we <laughs> there's no way we can possibly. It'd be like asking a caveman what we'd be doing now. He wouldn't be able to comprehend it. Yeah. So when you know, so, but but you know, again, we're we're trying to come up with ideas about what this technologically advanced old ancient you know, species would do, and, and, and really they're, you know, they're just assumptions based on what we would do now if we had more energy or more power or whatever, and, and we don't really know, so it's, you know, we could really be missing something crucial in the future sort of evolutionary of, of, of intelligent life that we're not quite comprehending just because we haven't got to that stage yet. Right, yeah. I mean, this idea of the caveman predicting uh, us, you know, this this Encino Man idea of of how that would that would appear or or that it would be impossible to conjure. Uh, it's 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 it is interesting to think about us as that caveman, uh, and and you know, even just in shorter time periods, I I. I uh, just a uh, hundred years ago, I, this movie, uh, 1917, that's out. You think you're mm-hmm. watching the movie thing. God, if any of these guys just had a fucking cell phone, you know, but if you told them about what a cell phone was, it, it just it, like the, the whole, their whole mind would collapse. And, but now today, a phone in our pocket is, is probably the, the most ubiquitous thing you could imagine. Is there, mm-hmm. when looking forward, it's with specifically in terms of SETI technology, technology that might aid or where the technology might be headed, is there anything mm. that you look out toward the future and think this is sort of a vague sense that you have of where our search might be headed in terms of either the technology we're using or the approach that might shift, anything like that that you Pro- might sort of see as the next coming wave of where this might be going. Sure, I think we'll still stick to mostly looking for electromagnetic magnetic radiation, so radio and, and laser light. Um, although people have talked you know, about trying to look for signals sent via neutrinos, which are these really light 
uh, hard, very hard to detect particles, or even gravitational waves, um, which have been in the news recently because we've been detecting gravitational waves, which were predicted by Einstein back in 1915. Um, the only problem with gravitational waves is, is to create them so that they're loud enough for us to detect. You've got to kind of crash black holes or neutron stars together, so right. not that easy. It's probably simpler just to send a radio signal. I think the main advances are going to be we're entering this age of, of astronomy in general where we're going to start gathering huge amounts of data from these huge surveys of the sky. And we got a glimpse of that just last week with this um, release of, as I mentioned, the two petabytes mm -hmm. of data from the Breakthrough Listen project. And that's a lot of data. And, you know, the, the, the square kilometre array, which is going to be this huge um, array of radio telescopes based in South Africa and Australia, um, that's going to be doing general sort of radio astronomy, but it's also probably going to do some SETI as well. That's going to produce terabytes of data every day. So we're going to have a lot of data to search through. And, you know, human beings aren't going to be able to search through all that data. So we're going to be right. developing artificial intelligence and algorithms to, to really scrutinize and look through that data for anything that looks artificial. Um, we're also going to start looking more for, um, you know, techno signatures. So... We have, you know, uh, space missions that are hunting for exoplanets, planets around other stars, and it detects those planets. When the planets move in front of their star, they block some of the star's light, and these space missions can detect that dip in light and realize there's a planet there. And a round planet will give a certain, uh, what they call a light curve, the way that this, the light dips and then, and then goes back up as the planet moves across the face of the star. Well, if there's some kind of artificial structure there, then that would create a different kind of light curve that you could recognize. Or maybe the aliens are doing something else with their star that would cause its brightness to, to fluctuate. So we're starting to look in those kind of areas as well. Um, but yeah, I, I would have thought in 100 years' time, we would still be doing radio right. set. Definitely, right, right, yeah. right. Again, a 100 years' time, to a lot of people, <clears throat> sounds like a very, very long time. But when you take mm -hmm. a longer view of these things, that's like you know it's that bucket basically you know it's it's that's that's actually it's no time at all uh in terms of the grand scheme of things which is another just a yet another way to make our brains hurt uh but uh, <laughs> when you, you uh, i'm curious to to what you're sort of shifting gears a little bit what you're when you are the ufo report thing you know people and mm. people who insist that they've seen or even documented, you know, this idea that sort of never goes away. We saw it again with this recent Area 51 sort of insane sort of thing happening here in the States. Do you have a specific reaction to that? I mean, I, I know that at, at its core, there's this ultimately relatable thing of, of course, we all want that so bad. It's, gen it's just simple wish fulfillment type of stuff. But but it, what is your specifically... Uh, what? What is that like? How do you feel about that kind of stuff? Well, look, when I was a teenager, I was you know interested in UFOs as well. You know, from background of being interested in space exploration, science fiction, of course, I was going to be. Um, I think as I've got older and, and and learned more about science, then I've kind of seen the flaws in you know when people report UFOs. I think you know ordinary people, you know, members of the public, if they see something strange, it. it you know, I don't have any issues with them asking questions. Well, could it have been, you know, aliens? Right. I think. I think 
sometimes where people may go a little bit overboard is is it's the first conclusion they jump to right. and they don't listen to any you know other alternative explanations I, th- I think you have to go by Occam's razor the simplest explanation is probably likely to be the true explanation and right. unless you you know you know the famous Sherlock Holmes quote you have to rule out everything else and whatever remains however improbable is the truth but they're not ruling out everything else first um so, I, you know, that's all I would say. If somebody thinks they've seen something, then try and rule everything else out before, you know, leap into the conclusion that it must be aliens. I mean, <laughs> we, you know, we have things like drones, Chinese lanterns, all those kind of things that can masquerade as, as, as a, you know, alien spacecraft. And people are going to say, well, what about that, you know, footage from the, uh, the, the um, USAF fighter planes? That was released. Um, oh right, yeah, of- yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I, I kind of watched that. It was gun camera footage, and and the Air Force admitted there was something there. So I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that it didn't happen or it was hoax or anything. But you know, I don't know if you've seen the footage, but it's I have, yeah, quality gun camera footage. It's mm-hmm. just a fuzzy blob. You can't tell what you're looking at really, what direction you're looking at, how fast it's moving. I, I believe even the, the pilots didn't say it did anything impossible. They said it was very fast and they couldn't catch it. But, you know, surely the, the United States Air Force or other powers on other nations on Earth have their top secret aircraft that we don't know about. So could it have possibly been some advanced drone or something like that? So that seems to be to be more likely than, you know, it being aliens. And, there's you know, people see that footage and immediately jump to the alien. Yeah answer rather than considering what other things could be and i think this reflects in seti as well because you know we have to be careful if we detect something strange we have to be careful not to immediately jump to the conclusion that it's aliens because the likelihood is it's not aliens and it's some kind of astrophysical phenomenon natural phenomenon that we just haven't identified so we need to look at it more closely um at the moment in the news you may have heard about these things called fast radio bursts frbs um they're these peculiar bursts of radio waves that last nanoseconds to milliseconds they're really powerful and they seem to come from very far away nobody knows what they are they're coming from all different directions in the sky so astronomers are assuming that they're that they're na- natural mm-hmm. um nobody's jumping to the conclusion that they're artificial or anything just yet um but, you know, it, 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 you could easily imagine an irresponsible scientist detecting something odd and then having a press conference the next day, I found them, I found the aliens, right. and then two months later, it turns out to be something else. <laughs> um, you know, in the case of the discovery of pulsars by Jocelyn Bell, uh, when they were discovered, at first they weren't entirely sure what they were, and maybe they were aliens. Um, and, and being the responsible scientists they were at Cambridge, they, they held fire until they could figure out what it was um but you know now we're in the age of you know it's not just governments and 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 scientists who could do SETI that you know you can imagine somebody like Elon Musk might one day decide to do SETI and if he discovers something odd is his SETI team gonna you know confirm it and study it with the same amount of rigor that a a, you know a, a proper scientist would are they going to jump to conclude you know so so there's this whole you know there's something called the seti protocol that most seti scientists know about and it's you know if you discover something strange what's the protocol to follow you know to 
confirm whether it is a real safety signal or not. You have to get another radio telescope to confirm it's there and, and, and so on and so forth um, to try and avoid false alarms like that. Um, yeah, yeah. It's also, it's interesting also, it's, it, it is, they jump, these people do jump to that conclusion before much simpler possibilities, but they also often, when they are shown that it is something else, they'll still hold fast to the fact that it was a UFO or whatever they really thought it was in the first place, which really sort of, in a way, kind of does reveal the their really just their desires in the first place you know they want it to be that and yeah. it's it, it you know in the face of you know p- what one might call proof when it's held mm-hmm. the belief in the that it's this or that is held steadfast it's just it's almost it's it almost is just it's almost even more telling than the, than the initial assumption because there's a there's a version of my mind that I can sort of access where I especially if it's a, me seeing something firsthand where I in a moment because of whatever's happening in that moment am swept up in the, in it and I'm and I'm mm. led to believe that I'm certain it was a UFO that is something that I. Even though, although it's nothing like that's even come close to happening, I can access that or or some version I can I can I can relate to that I suppose, but mm-hmm. it's the other side of it that I find even more fascinating and and really unrelatable, which is if I'm shown that something is absolutely not a thing, no matter how much I wanted to have been that I I I can't hold fast to that anymore. And there is that though there is that group there there that's not really that small i mean it is a minority obviously but there are people that absolutely refuse to believe in the face of all kinds of evidence that no no no, what i saw what this footage is whatever is absolutely evidence of life outside earth mm-hmm. it's interesting isn't it it's, it's i mean i mean look because I, I, I do astronomy I, i'm often looking at the sky and occasionally i see something strange and i think what's that you know, and part of yeah. my mind wants to, you know, wants it to be alien spacecraft come, you know, land on the White House lawn or whatever. <laughs> but, but, you know, then I stop to think about it and no, it's a flare or it's a Chinese lantern or, it's, you know, it's, there's a natural explanation. I, I think the fact that, you know, so many people are interested in UFOs is good in a way because it shows people are interested in, in, you know, alien life. Mm-hmm. Um, and on some level it relates you know, they can relate to it in, in some way. It means something to them. I think what you're talking about there about, you know, people, you know, e- even when you confront them with the evidence that, no, it was swamp gas or whatever, or Venus, that, you know, they still don't believe it. I think we kind of see echoes of that as well, you know, in like climate change denialism, mm-hmm. uh, these conspiracy th- conspiracy theories. Um, and I, I don't know what it is. It, it's like, yeah, I... It's like a rational part of our mind sometimes sh- shuts off and doesn't. It just refuses to believe what's staring us straight in the face. Yeah, it uh, is a refusal, and it does seem like an, it's not even a conscious refusal. I don't think these people are sitting there thinking, "I know that that's not true, but I don't want that to be the case." So I'm going to vociferously tell the, tell them that 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 I believe it still is, even though I know it's not. That that doesn't seem to me to be happening at all. I. I think it really is this totally unbeknownst to them refusal to engage with uh, mm. 
all of the things that are telling them it's not actually what the, what they want it to be, you know. And, sure. and and you're right that does cover not just uh uh in fact it, uh, on the show we've had I've had specifically uh conspiracy theorists, I've had a flat I've d- talked to a flat earther uh mm-hmm. and there's just no there's no even approaching the possibility that he's wrong to him, you know? Yeah. And, and it's really, I mean, to me, that is endlessly fascinating because just like outer space, there's no fucking answer. We don't know why. We don't know how that's possible in the face of mm. actual evidence, how someone could not come to terms with the truth. But, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty rampant. I, I, uh, I also, I wanted to talk to you. I, do you have... Be- because it's something you know so deeply, do you have a kind? Is there like a a, a book or movie or or even a br- a strain of of a type of science fiction that you sort of uh, are drawn to or like more than than another? Like, is because you know so much? I would imagine there's a version that that like you're sort of cursed to only be able to interact with some without like sort of waving it off as oh that's that's sort of like a stupid or or whatever do you know what i'm saying like is there like yeah. a some that's kind of up to snuff for you almost with what you know uh or or is it does that sort of not really matter the reality of it to you is it more about the ideas and such yeah as, as, as long as it's got spaceships and laser guns in i'm happy <laughs> <laughs> i have yeah no I mean, I mean i love star wars star trek you know i i read a lot of science fiction novels space opera is a genre i particularly like it doesn't you know it doesn't have to stick to sort of it's fiction i don't have to stick to you know scientific reality in 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 that fiction i know you know what's real and what's fantasy um and and a lot of good a lot of good science fiction is is written by people with scientific backgrounds or who are scientists themselves right so you know there's a lot of good scientific ideas in the best science fiction and you know some of the best science fiction is, is probably our best sort of investigation into what contact with extraterrestrial life might be like or what aliens might be like um so yeah i think science fiction has a lot of power to teach us <laughs> science fiction again is as a way of projecting ourselves you know, into the future or into the, you know, the concept of the other, of the alien. Yeah. Um, and, and again, you know, science fiction is really about ourselves. Even when it's about aliens, it's, it's, it's about ourselves, really. Um, and the aliens are just surrogates for, our, you know, the different characteristics of, of, of human life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, I, I, I love science fiction. Um, I'm not really that sniffy about, about it, as long as the story, you know, is internally logically consistent and good characters and what have you then then no i'm I'm cool with with star wars and and everything um yeah yeah the, the science fiction again for a lot of the reasons we've been talking about does have that sort of front use the word frontier and it, mm-hmm. it the genre uh, at least you know in terms of the, the when i think of the film genres I, I in a weird way science fiction and certainly outer space science fiction uh is to me uh most similar really to the Western because it's again, this lawless open, absolutely unknown area that, that man is sort of venturing into. And similarly, you know uh, it's, it's really just about us encountering things about us, regardless Mm -hmm. of what the specific plot 
of one given story versus another is it's always really ultimately about us or and 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 specifically i think in science fiction which is something why i'm so drawn to it i think science fiction uniquely uh is sort of a a a whiteboard for our fears you know things that scare us uh Mm -hmm. whether it's about science really or not are really really it maps on so well to the genre uh and 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 I think a lot of what we've been talking about plays into that. Just the, the sheer unknown of it makes mm-hmm. it sort of this clear map for for a writer or someone who's just terrified of it to really sort of get their feelings out through 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 story, through plot, through whatever you know. Yeah, I, I mean, that, of course, Star Trek was pitched to TV execs as as wagon train to the stars, um, and, and and you're right. There's a lot of similarity in terms of, of westerns and science fiction in terms of you know engaging with the frontier um i think i mean if we look at star trek i think it's a lot more intelligent than just that mm-hmm. uh, you know it, it does show us encountering other other life forms and and i guess dealing with them in a, a responsible way <laughs> you know uh, you know if, if i could choose anybody you know if, if we made contact with a, an alien civilization tomorrow and if i could get anybody from fiction to to meet with them it would be jean-luc picard you know because <laughs> i love that yeah, yeah. yeah and i think i think that's that's the difference i think between westerns and science fiction and, and seti is that if we really did discover other civilizations out there we can't go in with that kind of western attitude we have mm-hmm. to be a lot more responsible about how we go about contact um, because a misunderstanding in contact could lead to disaster uh, for one or both sides. And we've seen that in history on Earth when um, different societies meet. Um, often, well, contact events tend to be complex. The one that often gets trotted out is obviously the Europeans going over to the Americas mm-hmm. and, and what happens to the native population. And, and absolutely, you know, millions and millions and millions of of native americans died but it wasn't most of that was through diseases brought over from from europe that the uh the indigenous population had no um defenses against but of course there was was violence and um and all that um but yeah i think i think when we make contact we're not prepared. We're not ready to make contact. We, you know, there's a, a group of uh, SETI scientists who are currently, you know, wanting to beam messages from Earth out into space for extraterrestrial life to, to hear, you know, to alert them to our presence. And there's this big controversy about whether that's a wise thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the straw man argument that gets thrown out there is that, well, they're too far away, so they can't invade us or anything. Yeah, that's true, but the act of co- contact itself can be risky. Um, even if we make contact with a civilization that, you know, is, is you know, kindly and altruistic and just wants the best for us, things could go wrong. For example, they might give us some of their technology. Um, but what if that technology proves disruptive to our society? Um, so, you know, look at the effect that... You know, when we've invented a new technology here on Earth, has that had a, a positive or negative effect? Look at the motor car, for example. Well, that's obviously had a big positive effect because it's allowed people to get from A to B. It's, you know, that's helped the economy. It's a sign of uh, freedom and independence. But, you know, we've also had to 
bulldoze the countryside to build highways and parking lots and there's all the air pollution so that's the downside so there's pros and cons to that now the example i often use as a hypothetical is imagine we we made contact with with aliens and they gave us some of their technology and it's like the replicator from from star trek you know where they press a button and whatever they want materializes mm. <clears throat> well that would be great you know we, we'd never you know starvation would end instantly because you just have to press a button and it would make as much food as needed um you know people wouldn't no longer have to die from diseases they don't need to because they can't get access to the medicines because again you could just replicate it and you'd have whatever you needed great life would improve vastly but what would be the downsides the economy would just crash because you, you wouldn't have to make anything anymore mm-hmm. um, you know so nobody would have any money but if they have a replicator to make what they want maybe they don't need it but what happens when you know we get access to you know unlimited resources we we really go to excess so can you can you, you know imagine the you know people would just the epidemic of obesity of of you know be a drugs epidemic like never before because you could just make whatever drug you wanted materialize um nefarious characters could you know just have weapons replicated for them so and yeah. who knows what else so so you know there's there's pros and cons to that technology being introduced into our society um similarly you know what if aliens brought a religion what would that do to the religions that make up our society um or other cultural sort of ideas would they disrupt our culture so there's all these things that you have to consider when you make contact with another society and to be blunt seti scientists haven't really thought about this and that's why we need to widen the discussion to bring in you know anthropologists historians evolutionary biologists and, and and anybody else who you know would have you know something to offer to the discussion um because you know it's we wouldn't be meeting them on equal terms and we wouldn't know anything about their culture their technology their religions or anything so we'll be open we'll be vulnerable i guess to um you know things upsetting the apple cart with our society um you know we could easily be a misunderstanding between us and them what would that would that lead to problems um right. and we just, you know we just don't think about this kind of thing science fiction does science fiction considers these things so that's yeah. why i think we need to look at you know the good science fiction a little bit more yeah that's true i mean that that is very true and and also there's something to be said for this you know there there even even if we take every precaution to 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 we only know what we know before we meet the thing that's new. And so, you know, even just to use cars as an example, we, we, we knew that cars would help people do the things that, that, that made, you know, that made cars exciting in the first place. You know, transportation, uh, riding the countryside, taking big groups, getting places faster, many, many things. Cars made life better and easier for people. But at the same time, no one at that point was probably worried about the environment because it wasn't something to worry about. They didn't know that it was even a thing that they might have to worry about. And that's the kind of thing that you can only anticipate anticipating. You can't even quite anticipate it. And so with SETI, it's almost the the, the ultimate of that because yeah. you don't even know what, what you're expecting in the first place. So how can you possibly... There's, there's, there's enough... There are things you can do for precaution and being careful, all these things. But there is also a, the ultimate wild card of 
We just have no idea what the thing's going to be. And that thing could bring things we haven't even thought of yet or can't possibly think of yet until we encounter it, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, and it is, you know, there's, there'll be the known knowns, there'll be the known unknowns and, and, and un, unknown unknowns. Um, right, right. So, you know, we don't know what we would be letting ourselves in for, but I think, you know, even when we make contact, there's going to be a certain amount of risk. But I, I think if we prepare and if we acknowledge that, yes, there is some risk here, then we'll, we'll be better prepared in that sense. Um, yeah. You know, and, and we can look at our own history and how contact between different societies on Earth has played out and what we can learn from that. And again, you know, it's, it's this idea of, of learning about ourselves when we consider SETI. Um, so, you know, people might say, you know, searching for aliens is a waste of time, but I just think that, you know, concept that we can learn about ourselves in the process makes it worthwhile. Um, yeah. And if we find something, that's just the cherry on top. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is, there's so much here. Thank Keith. Thanks so much. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about your book before we go. Uh, I yeah. know it just came out, just, just came out, right? Like a few couple of weeks ago in the States at least. Yeah. 21st of January in the United States and in October here in the UK last, last October. And the title is The Contact Paradox, right? Yeah. And it's available everywhere. Uh, uh, and and I, I urge you all to pick it up. I mean, it, it's uh, Keith, you provide us with a very uh, interesting way and, and I think a uh, new way of thinking about these things. And, and I really appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Uh, and yeah, uh, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you.